Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Luke 24, starting on verse 13. So now, the same day, uh, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you are walking along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Uh, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do you not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and what is more there it is the third day since all of this took place in addition some of the women amazed us they went to the tomb early this morning but they didn't find his body they came and told us that they hadn't they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said but they but him they did not see he said to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself as they approached the village to which they were going jesus continued on as if as if he was going further But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus has recognized by them when he broke the bread. Wonderful. Okay. One of my favorite films is The Shawshank Redemption. I'm sure a number of you have that as a favorite film. It's a great uh, film. And uh, it's a film about hope. And we're talking about a couple looking for hope and a meal of hope. The basic plot is this. Andy, (coughs) this man here, is sentenced uh, to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for murder of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. Only he knows that he's innocent. He's very isolated and lonely as he experiences the brutality of prison life. But he comes to realize there's something deep inside that prison life or those around him cannot get to or ever touch, and that is his hope. 
Andy becomes friends with a convicted murderer named Red, uh, Morgan Freeman, who eventually becomes his best bud. Red's a guy who knows how to get things because he's a contraband smuggler. And Andy asks him to get him a rock hammer to collect rocks, but he really wants to plan his great escape. And a friendship develops between uh, Andy and Red that makes it a classic film. But they have different views on hope. Red has no hopes and dreams. In fact, he fears leaving the prison because he's become institutionalized. He can't imagine life outside of a prison. But Red, uh, but Andy has hope for escape and life beyond the prison walls. And so a great story emerges. Two views on hopes famously expressed in this moment in the film. Morgan Freeman, Red says, hope is a dangerous thing, my friend. It can drive a man insane. Andy says, hope is a good thing, maybe even the best of things, and good things never die. Two men grappling with hope. So why does Red say hope is a good thing? Um, maybe the best of things. Why does, hope, why does Red say hope is a dangerous thing? Hope can drive a man insane. Because if you have hopes, if you live for something, but that hope never becomes a reality. Red is saying you're worse off than if you'd never hoped at all. It's better off not to hope. Why? Because Red says because it protects that internal pain when you hope for something and it never comes true. Unfulfilled hopes, Red says, from a life in prison can drive a man insane. But yet it's not that simple, is it? Andy says, no, 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 no. Hope's a good thing, the best of things. Who can live without hope? Who can carry on today without a dream for tomorrow? Two people grappling with hope is what we have in verse 21. We had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. Two people on a road called the Emmaus Road out of Jerusalem who'd lost hope. They'd lost hope because they were followers of Jesus and they thought Jesus was going to bring about God's kingdom to Israel uh, as had been promised in the Old Testament that God would rescue his people from the enemies, in this case the Romans, would vindicate his people and show them to be the true people of God and bring about peace on earth. But instead of beating the Romans, vindicating the Jewish people and bringing peace on earth, Jesus had been crucified by the Romans. His people had been scattered and the might of Rome was very much still in charge. Israel had not been redeemed. They had lost hope in Jesus and therefore they had lost hope in life. And did you notice they're walking away from Jerusalem? It's Luke's way of symbolizing that this couple was walking away from all they believed in and had hoped for. They're in a place of despair on the road to nowhere, like much of our culture. In a place of despair on the road to nowhere, coming to terms with their shattered dreams. We had hoped. And how many of us can feel that? How do you finish the sentence? I had hoped. I'd hoped for a marriage partner or an easy marriage or a difficult different sexual orientation. I'd hoped for a family and children or more children or easier children or a less complicated family life. I'd hoped for a job that would fulfill or at least give me financial independence without 
or a job that doesn't demand everything of my time and energy that leaves me with so little capacity. Or I hope by this stage of my life I'd have a house I could call my own. Or I don't need a house, I just want affordable accommodation that doesn't seem to take away most of my income. We'd hoped. Or maybe you'd hoped more personally about stability in your life at this stage. Those insecurities, those sinful tendencies, those youthful ways, those doubts and dark thoughts, those mental health challenges, those physical health challenges. I'm still waiting for life to ease off and give me a break. When will I arrive and feel comfortable in my own skin? I'd hoped I'd be more stable at this stage in my life. Or maybe you'd hope for a friendship group or even just one deep Christian friend that you could count on, that you could click with, that you could rely on, and they would look out for you as much as you look out for them because you seem to look out for others and it doesn't quite come back, and you'd hoped. And then there's COVID and two years of our life, and we were standing still or regressing, and we lost so much, and it cost us so much, and it set us back, and we're struggling to recover, and we're still struggling to sort of get back up and running, and there's damage maybe done, and we're trying to, we just hope for an easier time. And then there's war in Ukraine. There's rising cost of living. I mean, we just hoped that this wasn't the life that we're having to live. For many people, especially young people, our hopes are often dashed on the rocks of reality time and time again. And we're on the Emmaus Road with this couple, grappling with hope, with God, with the future, with ourselves. Life hasn't turned out as we expected. And the Greek word for this discussion, and I don't know Greek, but I read it in the commentary, is they're actually having a strong debate. It's a strong, heated discussion. They're trying to figure out the agony of the cross and the empty tomb that the women had spoken about. And they were trying to interpret the past. Well, if Jesus died and if this has happened in my life and that's gone on and the Romans are doing this, and were my hopes naive? Was I stupid? Was I, did we, were we foolish? It's confusing. And what you hope for doesn't come about. And those hopes weren't necessarily bad hopes. They're trying to put their world back together and they're trying to do it without Jesus. So how do we put our world back together without the one who was with us and is now not with us? Well, let's look at how Jesus puts their world back together, restores their hope, and can restore our hope. Not because we get everything we hope for and dreamed, but because we encounter the resurrected Christ in the scriptures and in the meal. And he becomes the focus of all of our hopes. The story starts with two people on the road to nowhere, with their backs towards God and God's people and God's city, and all their hopes dashed on the rocks of reality. And it ends up with their hearts burning, returning to Jerusalem, excited to share the news with the other 11 disciples. It is true, the Lord has risen. Hope is rekindled in the resurrected Christ. So four things Jesus does to restore hope. He asks the question, This is in your handout if you want to follow along. He gives a rebuke. He gives them a Bible study. And he gives them a meal. That's what Jesus will do for us. First of all, he gives them a question or two. He asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they say, and he says, what things have happened? So there's two questions. Jesus asks them to explain their shattered dreams. Jesus enters in. He considers the, their pain. He understands their story. Uh, he, he listens to their disappointment. He walks with them. 
Consider for a moment with me the patience of Jesus here. If you were Jesus and you met two depressed Christians in a place of despair on the road to nowhere, would you not go, hey, it's me, relax, oh, it's all good, I'm here, panic not, don't worry. Would you not have jumped in with the great news of your resurrection? Not fat. I mean, walking and talking, there's this bit where Jesus pretends to go a bit further. You're like, what are you doing? You just tell him you're here, like, stop being such a fool. This Bible study, this meal. It's like, Jesus, you're not the most effective way of helping people overcome their grief. There's quicker ways to get this on moving forward. But that's how we think. Because we don't like to be patient. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after their sin, full of guilt and shame? What did God do? He comes walking in the cool of the day. And what happens? He asks questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Does God lack knowledge? Does he need his gaps filling in? I don't quite know where you are and who told you. No, no, Jesus asks questions not for his sake, but for our sake. He wants to draw us out. He's like a good and wise counselor that knows how to draw out the deep wounds and hurts and pains and longings and disappointments and unmet expectations of our heart. Jesus wants us to tell him those things. He wants to hear it from our lips. He knows but he's asking a question to say, will you tell him? I'm a father of children. I love it when my children tell me what's going on in their heart. And I fear the teenage days when they stop. I want them just to keep telling me what's going on in your heart because that means an intimate relationship of trust that I can have with them. A grief-hardened heart can sometimes close up as your hopes are dashed. And Jesus comes with a question to try and open you up and soften you up. If you're hurting, if you're struggling with unmet expectations, with dashed hopes, he's not going to force his way in. He's gentle. He's going to ask a question or two. And he wants to start to massage your heart. If you're not sure how to open up in such a way, Mary came to the front yesterday with a word. In a place of doubt and discouragement, she started to journal. I do that a lot. Start to write down, these are my unmet expectations, these are my dashed dreams, these are my fears, these are my worries, these are my, this is my anger, frustration, hurt, numbness, whatever it is. Start writing it down to help yourself. Hear Jesus asking you the question and opening up. And once you've written it down, tell someone you trust in the church. Or find someone and pray that God will lead you to someone you can tell. And as you answer the questions Jesus is asking you about your hopes and the unmet expectations of life, the knots in the heart will loosen, the tears might come, the pain will start to ease, and Jesus will enter in. He is the wonderful counselor. You can trust him. So let him in. He starts with a question. He then gives them a rebuke, verse 25 to 27. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And then enter his glory. If you want to have your hope restored at some point, Jesus has to say to you, how foolish you are and slow to believe. He has to say that at some point to you. He has to challenge your expectations, your hopes and your dreams. He has to reveal some selfishness and small-mindedness in you. 
This couple on the road to Emmaus had not understood what it meant for Jesus to redeem Israel. Jesus had, in fact, redeemed Israel, but it had happened through a suffering servant dying on a cross, not the victorious king kicking out the Romans. Jesus' redemption of Israel wasn't a political, military victory on earth. It was a victory over death, darkness, sin, and Satan, which could only come about by drawing all their powers into himself on the cross through his resurrection, defeating and disarming them. So the traumatic events surrounding Jesus that they were grappling with were God's redemption, but they couldn't see them. But they should have known. Jesus says, you should have known from the Old Testament, verse Isaiah 53, the Messiah would have to suffer first and then enter his glory. Jesus had to change their thinking. He had to enlarge their minds. He had to reveal their foolishness. And if you want Jesus to restore your hope in any area of life, he has to do the same to you. He has to say, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe. He has to confront you and say, stop trying to force life down the path that you've mapped out, Steve, and let me give you another path. Stop trying to force me to fit into your small view of the world, Steve, and let me give you a bigger view. Stop having your thinking conform to the pattern of this world and your friends and the media and start having your thinking conform to my word. And don't forget, the path for the Christian is the same path that Jesus walked. It's suffering now, glory later. A lot of our hopes and dreams will not be met now. Is They thought, oh, Israel, we're going to be triumphant now. And Jesus says, no, no, we'll be triumphant then. And we have to accept that same path of suffering and then glory. We don't get the glory now. You want to have your hope restored? Jesus has to say how foolish you are and slow to believe. If you cannot hear those words, then you're going to be stuck on a road to nowhere, constantly frustrated by life and God as your hopes are dashed on the rocks of reality. Now notice the first two points and how they work together. He is the wonderful counselor. He'll be gentle. He'll ask a question. He'll enter in. He'll walk some of the journey with you on that path to nowhere. He'll share your pain. He'll understand. And when the moment comes, when you are ready, he will give the rebuke because your heart will be ready for it. He's not trying to offend you. He's, not, he's trying to put you out of your comfort zone, but he's not trying to be nasty. He's not trying to hurt you, but he is trying to help you. Do you remember the famous story of Jesus meeting the two grieving sisters in John 11? Lazarus has died and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, are grieving. They know their brother would not have died if Jesus hadn't delayed the journey. If you read the story in John 11, when they called him, but he delayed and the brother died. And Jesus has taken four days to arrive and they can't understand the timing of Jesus. And we can't often come with a time. Why hasn't this happened now? And they couldn't understand it. And they're grappling with this sense of loss and anger and hurt and frustration. And, and they both have the same question to Jesus. It's a, it's a very important important part of the story they both say to Jesus if you'd been here my brother would not have died where were you Lord when I needed this timeline and to Martha he says I'm the resurrection and the life the one who believes in me will live do you believe me Martha and Martha says yes Mary asks the same question and to Mary we get the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept it's the same brother, two sisters. They're starting to lose hope. They have exactly the same question. And Jesus knows one of them needs truth and one of them needs tears. He knows when you need the gentle question and the walking on the road for a bit. 
and he also knows when you need truth. It's both. If you only have questions, comfort, and tears, and you have a, you have a companion on the road to sympathize with you, but that companion won't turn you around unless someone changes your thinking. But if you only have challenge and truth, well, the truth will fall on deaf ears because we're not soft to hear it. We're too hard. We're too hurt. We're too proud. We're just not ready. It's all too raw, and we'll be scared off. So we need someone to walk with us first. It's only as we have truth and tears, questions and rebuke, gentleness and challenge that hope can be restored. We need both. And as a church, we need to learn to model what our wonderful counselor has done for us with one another. There's time just to walk down a road for quite a while with someone as they grapple. And there's time to say, hey, we need to just talk. And you need the Spirit's guidance. And we get it wrong. We need grace. Love, love covers over a multitude of sins. But be aware of thinking it's just about asking questions and walking. And be aware of thinking it's just about bringing the truth to people's lives. You need both together. Let's learn from our wonderful counselor. So he gives them a question. He gives them a rebuke. Next, to restore their hope, he gives them Bible study. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was in all the scriptures concerning himself. I've met so many people over the years in evangelistic contexts that have said, Steve Shaw, if I'd met Jesus myself, I would have believed in him. But I wasn't around for the 40 days he supposedly walked the planet after his resurrection and had all those resurrection appearances. So I don't know him personally, and that's why I don't believe in him. But you see what Jesus is doing here on the Emmaus Road? He's preparing all of history and all of the church and all of us to know how you get to know Jesus when he is no longer with us physically through a Christ-centered Bible study. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a story of a beggar called Lazarus who lives in a, a, at the gate of a rich man. Upon dying, Lazarus goes to Abraham's side while the rich man goes to hell. The rich man asks Abraham to send Lazarus to, with water to cool his pain. When the rich man is refused, he makes a second request. He asks Lazarus to be sent to his brother to warn of God's judgment. And Abraham replies, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If God's word is not enough, someone rising from the dead will not be enough. How do you and I encounter Jesus today? He's not here physically. And at this moment in the story, he's not there physically for them. They either You encounter him through Christ-centered Bible study, the scriptures. And what do the disciples remember from this amazing walking Bible study? Imagine walking along studying the Bible. Verse 32, one of my favorite verses. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Notice again, just to really make the point, their hearts did not burn as they met him physically. Their hearts burned as they understood Christ from all the scriptures. Have you ever had your heart burn as you've read the scriptures or had it preached to you or had a city group discussion? You start to encounter Jesus. He turns up in the study. He's there. It feels so real. By the Holy Spirit, our hearts burn. That's the provision of how you get to know Jesus personally when he's not here physically. Christ-centered Bible study. May our church be a place where our hearts burn as we study the scriptures and as we encounter Jesus. Studying the Bible is not less than an academic exercise, but it's far more we encounter the author behind it. You can study the Bible without knowing Jesus. Most people are 
Trinity College Biblical Studies Department who are professors, unfortunately, fill into that category. But you cannot know Jesus without knowing the Bible. You need to study it. So how do I get to know Jesus when he's not with us? I read all the Bible, starting with Moses in the book of Genesis, through to Deuteronomy, and then the prophets, and all the way through. And I discover Jesus in every part. He is the ark of rescue of Noah in Genesis. He is the tabernacle of God's presence in Exodus. He is the sacrificial lamb for the forgiveness of our sins from Leviticus. He is the pillar of fire to guide us through the wilderness of Numbers. He is the word that gives life of Deuteronomy. As we read from Moses onwards, we discover Jesus as the greater Abraham who leaves his home to bring blessing to all nations. We discover him as the greater Jacob who wrestled with God, not for his blessing, but for our blessing to open a stairway to heaven. We discover him as the greater Joseph, the rejected and mistreated prince who forgives and reconciles with his siblings. We discover him as the greater Jonah who goes into the heart of the earth and rises again for our eternal life. We discover him as the greater Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who takes our burdens and responsibilities onto himself as frail foreigners and aliens and he provides and he cares for us. We discover him as the greater David, the exiled king whose life ensures we can be part of an everlasting kingdom. We discover him as the son of man in Daniel 7 who gives God will give authority to all nations. We discover him as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who gains victory through sacrifice. It's all about him. It's one big story that we get to know him. Personally speaking, it's the greatest thing the Holy Spirit ever did for me was to make my heart burn at the scriptures and encounter Jesus. If you want to know him, pray that the Spirit would make your heart burn and then put yourself in a position where that prayer can be answered by studying it daily by turning up to city group and studying it together, by bringing your Bible at church and making notes. If you're a family, start to have family devotion, simple ways, reading half a chapter, a story, and praying with your children. Find ways of making the Bible part of everyday life, personally, in the family, and in the church. How does our hope get restored in our lives? Jesus asks a question. He's gentle and enters into the pain, point one. Then he rebukes us and challenges our thinking and our small-mindedness. Then he reveals himself in the scriptures so our hearts burn. And fourth point, Mimi, is he gives us a meal. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with them, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told the, um, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. When were their eyes opened? When he broke bread. Their hearts burned as they understood the scriptures, but their eyes are opened through a meal. How do we get to know Jesus when he's not here physically? Through the scriptures and through the bread and the wine. The two provisions of God for all of church history. He's not here. I wish he was here and I could get to know him, but I can't like that. So I have scriptures 
and I have bread and wine called communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And it's not just the moment of the bread and the wine, it's the community, it's the meal. It's other Christians in your life. And just interestingly, in the rush of the narrative up to this point, one commentator said there's this calming moment of the meal, of slowing everything down in the narrative. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. We encounter Jesus as we slow down in God's community to eat together and to have bread and wine and to love one another. And what do the bread and the wine point to? We're going to share it in a moment. They point to three things, well, more than this, but three simple things for now. Past, present, and future. In the past, the bread and the wine point back to the finished work of Christ, guaranteeing our salvation and our righteousness through faith. We look back in remembrance of the great salvation he's won for us. We look around at the new family that's been created through his blood. Our brothers and sisters who we share a meal with and the benefits and responsibilities of belonging to God's family together. We look back at the salvation, we look around at one another and we look forward to the day when he comes again in power and glory and we eat together where in a heavenly banquet. We look forward to a meal. There's suffering now. There's going to be a glorious meal then. And when he comes again, he will come in power and glory. Every hope will be realized. Every desire will be fulfilled. Every thirst will be satiated. Every wound will be healed. Every longing will be fulfilled. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee that this world is not going to remain in a place of despair on the road to nowhere. And the meal, the bread and the wine are the way for our hearts to long for Jesus and be nurtured by Jesus and to help us in our hopes when this world is not all that it promises to be and it disappoints you that you put your hope in the world to come, the new heavens and the new earth. You will have a home and that home will have many, many rooms. You will have a spouse and that spouse will be Jesus and he'll love and complete you. You will have friends, millions of them. You will have a stable existence free from emotional, mental, and physical frailties. You will have a feast, and Jesus is the bread at the feast. And until that day comes, what do we do? The Apostle Paul says we wait patiently. In Romans 8, he talks about the whole of creation groaning, waiting to be redeemed. He talks about how we groan, waiting for our redemption, for new bodies that's why we're still frail now. We haven't had the full redemption of our bodies. He talks about how the Spirit helps us and the Spirit groans with our groaning as creation groans. And he says, one day we're going to be raised too and, and we'll have new physical bodies. And this is what he says, for in this hope we are saved and we are fully going to be resurrected with Christ. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? What you already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, what do we do, brothers and sisters? We wait for it patiently. Friends, we are often with these two disciples saying, we had hoped. May the power of the resurrected Jesus, the long-standing testimony of the scriptures, the bread and the wine which we share with God's family and the future heavenly banquet when every hope and desire is fully fulfilled help you to wait patiently when so many of our earthly hopes 
don't come about. And may it fuel you to do the very thing these two disciples did. They ran back to the city. We're going back to the city today. They ran back, hearts burning, eyes open, ready to share this of the Jesus they know and love. And that's what he wants us to do, to go back and share of the Jesus we've encountered in the scriptures and around the meal table. And so we say with Andy from Shawshank Redemption, hope is a good thing, maybe even the best of things, and good things never die. And with the disciples, we say it is true because Jesus is risen. Amen. Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray, and uh, I'm going to hand over to Maffy. He's going to lead us in taking the bread and the wine. Father, we thank you for this chance to reflect together on these meals over this weekend. We thank you for all that you've taught us, and we thank you, Lord, that uh, you are the good counselor that knows when we need the gentle question and knows when we need the tough truth. Make us a community of bringing and receiving those two things. We thank you for your scriptures and we pray our hearts would burn more readily and easily as they become alive to us and we encounter Jesus through them. And we thank you for the meal we're about to celebrate now in remembrance of him, the great salvation in the past, the wonderful joy of having a family to strengthen us in the present and that future hope of resurrected bodies and a physically being present with you, Lord Jesus. We sense your absence in our world now and we long for the day when we will eat and drink with you in the new creation. Thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.